Welcome to the Zico Health Show. This is weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. Here we discuss fitness, nutrition, gut health, alternative medicine, and anything else that impacts your health and fitness. So take a seat and enjoy the ride. So everyone, welcome back to the Zico Health Show. I'm extremely excited for this one because today I have Dr. Donna Mazzola, a.k.a. Dr. Autoimmune Girl. And you guys have heard so many times I've talked about autoimmunity and how it impacts, impacts our health, how it impacts our weight and our energy and so many other things. And Donna Mazzola is the perfect person. She's an autoimmune expert. So she's the perfect person to have on the show to talk to us today. Hi, Dr. Mazzola. How are you doing? Hello, I'm great. I'm so happy and excited to be here. I am so glad you're here. I know sometimes your schedules haven't matched up, but finally, <laughs> we made it get this puppy. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So I always start my show off with tell us about yourselves and tell us about your qualifications. Yeah, sure. So I am... Um, actually a pharmacist by training. So I graduated pharmacy school almost 20 years ago. Um, and through my education in pharmacy school, I always felt that there was a missing link with preventative care and lifestyle management and medicine. And it was just kind of like we were taught to just give a pill for the ill if there's symptoms. And we barely touched on um, you know, lifestyle, weight loss, nutrition, I mean, all these things that prevent disease. And so that always stuck with me. And I told myself that I would further my education and look into nutrition. And, and that just became more concrete when I was doing um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one patient consults, medication therapy management with patients and talking to people with diabetes and chronic heart failure and COPD and asthma and whatnot. And where these are all preventable conditions. And the one patient I talked to with diabetes had no idea what a carbohydrate was. And that was like the breaking point for me, you know, I'm like, wow, like, what are we doing wrong that we're not even explaining to people what they need to be eating for their disease. And so um, fast forward to 2015, I was personally diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. And that was it for me. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like, all right, I need to better understand why, how lifestyle, nutrition, I need to just go back to school and learn all this because I can't just rely on a Google search or, you know, whatever it may be. Because we don't learn these things in school, unfortunately. And it's sad to say, but we just don't. Um, and so in 2000. 20, actually last year, I graduated with a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine, which helps balance my background in pharmacy. And so with that um, schooling, I started my blog, Dr. Autoimmune Girl, where I felt that I could empower others with what I was learning to take control of their health and, um, you know, potentially get off of medication, understand and learn the reasons why, understand what lifestyle implications they can input into their daily life to just feel better um, and delay progression of disease, especially for autoimmune. Um, and so I, I, the blog has grown so much over the years organically just because I'm sharing my knowledge. And that's the main purpose 
of the blog. And so, um, it, you know, it's led to things like this, being able to get on the show and talk even more deeply about these topics. Well, I'm glad to have you here because we're going to get pretty deep today. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on to the edge of your chairs and get your notepads ready because she's about to school us all. OK, just let you know that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you are so right. You do have a lot of knowledge to share. Of course, I've been following you on Instagram and I love your posts. And every once in a while you post something, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Let me research. Let me learn more about that. And I love where there are doctors and experts like yourself who is now spreading this knowledge. I have a, just a short story myself. When uh, I, I used to struggle with really bad allergies and asthma. And when I, uh, my allergies would bother me so much that I just, I would get dizzy and I couldn't breathe. I had to go home, lay on the couch. It was awful. And a lot, a lot of times is when the pollen count was high. Sometimes I didn't check. So maybe the pollen count was or wasn't high, but that was always my excuse. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I kept asking the doctors, anything I can do, any changes that I can make? And he said, no, take your Advair, Albuterol and some pill. I don't remember what the name of it is anymore. And I said, well, okay, I'll take those, but anything else, lifestyle changes, but just before I started studying nutrition. And he said, no, this is what you have to do. And I said to myself, you know, I was in my, in my mid thirties, I'm not going to be on medicine the rest of my life. If I start this now, there's no end to this. Yeah. So the first book I picked up was a book, uh, The Plan Paradox by Dr. Stephen Gundry. I'm sure you're probably familiar with him. And uh, I started learning about lectins. Never heard about lectins a day in my life. He started talking about leaky gut. And, you know, of course, back then, leaky gut was, was it's, it's still kind of new, but it was really new back then. Like, we didn't, a lot of doctors would say, I don't know about this, even those are experimental. I don't really know about leaky gut. But what I did learn and what I did pick up was I needed to improve the environment of my gut. So I embarked on my own gut healing protocol that worked for me. And um, long story short, as I can say now, it's been about two years since I've used any medicine, any wow. pills, my Advil or anything. And I, the biggest mistake I made was throwing the Advil away. I should have kept it and wore it around my neck like a medal. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I'm so mad that I threw it. I think the pills are probably somewhere around here somewhere, but I, I'm still really disappointed in that. But you are so right. Lifestyle changes makes such a huge difference and when we start to talk about these things and stop prescribing um pills like skittles then people can learn i can make the right changes to improve my life yeah yeah for sure and i think the the challenge is that there's still a significant amount of individuals out there that do want the pill um and i think that those that want to make a change but are scared, think that it's all or nothing. And so I always remind people like, it's okay to stay on your medication and start to implement your lifestyle changes. And with that, you'll notice it's like you shift the scale. And so then all of a sudden you're doing way more lifestyle changes, the need for medication comes down and, and you'll see that. And so like, don't be scared to jump in and and just try anything like the low hanging fruit to make those changes to just slowly decrease the need for medication and, and get control of your health. Essentially, you don't want it to control you. You want to control it. And you're 100% correct. And I love the way that you said that so eloquently, too, is that we can stay on medication and then start to implement other changes. I didn't get up one day and say, you know what? I'm never taking medicine ever again. Okay. I probably wouldn't be here today if I did that. 
So, exactly. <laughs> you know, I had to learn to make gradual changes and every, I'll say, okay, every, if I took my, it, it kind of, the doses went down. So it was from taking my, my medicine every day to return to every other day and then every three days, because I didn't need it as much. Right. Even my clients that I've worked with who are diabetic, who have dropped their dosage of their, um, of their insulin from 78 to 32 in about a year, year and a half of um, daily dosage. And they're so happy that they're able to do that. But I didn't tell them one day, hey, just stop taking insulin. <laughs> you know, you have to graduate, you have to graduate, make those changes. Yeah. So you can make those adjustments. You are definitely 100% correct. Yeah, absolutely. So you've had particular struggles. You mentioned before Hashimoto's and autoimmunity. So give us more details on your personal journey. Yeah, so I was diagnosed in 2015, and I would say that prior to my diagnosis, I had a baby in 2011, and after I had her, I developed allergies and this like ongoing sinus infection that just would not go away, and in the years to follow, I was put on, I was probably put on antibiotics on a monthly basis. And so you can only imagine what that did to my gut. At that time, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I was taking antibiotics regularly. I wasn't feeling any better. You know, I didn't understand the nutritional aspect or foods or nobody taught me any of that, right? It was just like they kept throwing pills at me, trying to make me better, and I wasn't getting any better. Um, so then come 2015, I was training actually for a half marathon and I was eating right. I was running a lot, you know, throughout the week. And I was noticing like, I'm, I'm gaining weight. Like I'm not even able to lose weight. It was just so bizarre. I'm like, this is crazy. Why is this happening? And I noticed that my hair was really dry and brittle. And I said, you know, and just having my medical knowledge, I'm like, there's gotta be something going on. Like I want my thyroid checked, you know? So I went to the doctor and she checked a regular blood panel. She checked the TSH, which is the most common level to check for thyroid disorders, um, but it's not the end-all be-all. And so I'll get into a little bit more of that later. And she also checked my cholesterol panel. So my levels came back, my cholesterol was actually elevated. And my TSH was quote unquote in the normal range, all right? So it was around four. And the range there is about like 0.5 to 5.5. So it was technically normal, but really what optimal is for optimal health is between one and two. So she's like, well, your TSH is normal, but it's bizarre to me that your cholesterol is elevated, which we know our thyroid is like the hub of metabolism, right? So obviously something was wrong that my cholesterol was high. And so um, she checked antibodies. And so when somebody has an autoimmune disorder, you know, there's some type of attack going on in the, in the body. And so a lot of times we can measure that and we can measure that level of inflammation with antibody testing. And so for Hashimoto, she checked a TPO antibody, thyroid peroxidase, and it was through the roof. And so that was the, all right, looks like you, you have Hashimoto's, you know, like that's the, the number one way to obviously diagnose it. And that was kind of like the starting point of my, I guess my, my purpose, I would say like, that's when it began it. At first it was like shocked and then mad and angry at myself. What did I do? And then it was like, okay, that's enough. Like, that's not going to make you better. 
um, you got to find out how you can take control of this. And I was so bothered that I had to take a pill every day. And so um, that's how I embarked on my journey to, to better health. And so it's been about six years now. And I still tell people like, I have my ups and downs, just like anybody else would, just like any other patient. Um, I'm no different. You know, I might have some of the knowledge, which I try to share with everybody so that everybody can benefit just like me and, and make those changes. But it's normal, right, to have your ups and downs with autoimmune disease. And, and sometimes, and there's so many factors that impact it, it makes it so complex and, of course, can be super frustrating. But it's, it's been a long road, but a good one. Oh, I can definitely understand that. And it says something that's key, too, about our thyroid being the hub of our metabolism. Yeah, that's something that a lot of us just don't understand, even those who are in the medical community, which is yeah. scary to me. Um, I agree. Is that we just don't get that. And then also with, uh, with, the th with the thyroid, then we're talking about hormones and hormonal imbalances. And when we talk about a TSH or a T1 or a T2 or a T3, those imbalances plays a huge role in lipolysis and, our, and fat oxidation. So working with an expert like um, Dr. Mazzola, who understands these things, can make a huge difference for us, not just in losing 10 pounds two, three months from now, but training yeah. our hormones, rebalancing our hormones so we can continue to lose weight and burn fat even as we age. So yes, you really gave us some great points there. So with that being said, let's dive a little bit deeper into thyroid dysfunction. And uh, what are some things that may contribute to it? Of course, it may look differently for each person, but just- in Right. Yeah. So I mean, even like just autoimmune disease in general. So there's several, right, that are out there, but like what causes it? So typically the first thing somebody has to have is some type of genetic predisposition. And so it's in your genes, but people are like, okay, well, if my mom had it, that means I'm for sure going to have it. And it's like, not necessarily because those genes have to be turned on. And then that's where those environmental triggers come into play. Um, and so what contributes to that development? It's like things like infections that may occur, um, you know, like the Epstein-Barr virus, which is also people know it as mono. That's highly linked to autoimmune disease development in Hashimoto's. We're even seeing that with COVID, unfortunately. You know, we're seeing about 40% of cases leading right now to autoimmune disease development. So, um, you know, viruses are, are not cool. <laughs> so they, they are linked highly to just immune dysregulation and leading to autoimmune disease. Like your body can't tell how to turn it off, how to distinguish between self and non-self. And so it leads to autoimmunity. Um, other triggers include chemicals and toxins. Um, you know, things like air pollution, things in the environment, um, toxins from makeup or self-care products or cleaning supplies, you know, we're exposed, flame retardants are on our carpets and our mattresses. And I mean, we're exposed to chemicals all day. Um, and so that exposure can cause that immune dysregulation as well. Um, things like smoking by itself, I mean, that leads to immune irregularities. Um, what else? Various dietary factors, obviously, different, you know, foods and food proteins and food antigens that, and, and ultimately what happens is we, we have that leaky gut where then we start getting more sensitive to different foods because these foods are spilling into the bloodstream and they're not protected right inside the gut cell walls and lining. Um, other things that contribute 
trying to think, oh, a gender, like hormones, huge, right? So women, 78% of women, you know, we think of autoimmune disease, 78% of those that have autoimmune disease are women. So it's gender bias for sure. And unfortunately, that's because of our hormones um, and that X chromosome that we have um, as opposed to men. And so there's just so much complexity with that. But unfortunately, you know, just just being a woman puts you at a higher risk, you know, and post-pregnancy is typically when we see a lot of autoimmune disease develop. Oh, wow. And you posted something on Instagram about that, I think, a couple of weeks ago about women. Just being a woman, you do have a higher exposure or higher chance of developing autoimmunity. That's that's really right. powerful. And I know that's something that scientists are going to keep looking at going forward to find out why that exactly that is and how to overcome it. But you did say a couple things that I do want to touch on as well. Yep. First, you talked about genes. I was actually having a conversation with one of my friends earlier this week, and she was talking about how genes play um, an, a factor in obesity. And in her mind, she's like, well, you know, my, my husband's family, they all have, you know, they've all, all they're obese. So, you know, he's dealing with that issue. And yeah. I started talking to her about, I didn't use the word epigenetics, but that's basically what I was talking to her about and explained to her that, yes, genes do play a factor, but they're, but that's only one factor. Like you mentioned, environmental, the things that we eat, do we, are, are we active? You know, of overall lifestyle, just like me, I brought the example of my asthma and my issues with my asthma and that yeah. almost everyone in my family struggles with asthma. I'm the only one that made the changes that I've made today. And I'm the only one who doesn't have that issue anymore. Yeah. So, yes, I could sit, sit around and say, well, everybody in my family struggles, so I'm going to take Advair for the rest of my life. Probably wouldn't be Advair. You know, every five years or so, they're going to give me some other crap to take. <laughs> so... Um, but you know, so, but I decided to make those changes. So that's really important for people to understand that. And then when we get into environmental, it is so important to talk about that right now with COVID running rampant in India. One of the biggest reasons why is because the air pollution in India is so bad and we need to be very mindful of that. And, and yes, a lot of my listeners don't live in India, but if you live here, there are things you can control within your own home the products that we use, the things that we breathe. The, we don't realize a lot of the toxins that we breathe in causes inflammation in our body just by breathing in the toxins. Also, our body has to try to respond to it. And you, you and I both know that the more our body tries to respond to itself, the higher chance of autoimmunity. So the, so the chemicals in the, food, in, this, in the products that we use play such a key role and I recommend if anybody, if you can, please switch to more natural products as much as you possibly can, because it's made such a huge difference in my life and so many other people that I've worked with. And if you can, you should do it the same, because you might not be able to, if you live somewhere where the air quality is poor, if you're, um, poor, sorry, I can't talk, you might not be able to control that necessarily, but you can control what's in your own home. You can have plants in your home. You can have air purifier in your home you can use something like home biotic when you clean your home and it's uh it's more um to give your body that probiotic the home that probiotic it needs to clean out a lot of the stuff that's normally that's usually there so there's so many things that we can do but really when it comes to our environment whatever we can control within our home makes such a huge difference with our health with our weight and we're just feeling better in general so those two things together I mean, I can talk about it all day, basically. So you're definitely correct. 
Yeah, yeah. I think my always my big takeaway is control what you can control, and then let your body do the rest. So like we can't control necessarily the air pollution outside, but we can support our body, support our um, our liver, right? Like with appropriate nutrients and nutrient dense foods so that our body can detox those things. But we have to do what we can to control and reduce that toxic burden that happens, you know, every single day with everything that we're exposed to. Exactly. And now that with a lot of us working from home, I know some of us are going back to the office, but with those who are working from home, you have such control over your home environment because you're there so much. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that it is clean and using the right products and you're breathing the right things and you're purifying your home consistently makes such a huge difference. So let's go on a little bit more. Let's talk about celiac disease and how it's related to thyroid dysfunction. Yeah, so actually, I mean, so celiac disease and, um, you know, Hashimoto's are obviously two different um autoimmune diseases, right? So celiac disease is, you know, more contributed in the gut and the ability to break down gluten and have like a response to that. That's why we recommend gluten-free diets. Um, and obviously Hashimoto's is targeting your thyroid gland. Um, but it's, it's crazy that, you know, they estimate that there's about one fifth of patients with celiac disease also have um, Hashimoto's. And so there's, there's that cross overlap between the two. Um, and what's really interesting is that um, I found that there's actually a, when you, when you have Hashimoto's and you eat gluten, there's actually similarities in the molecular structure of gluten and your thyroid glands. So if you think about autoimmunity, your body you know, it's getting a signal to attack your thyroid gland. It's basically saying this is a foreign object. So let me attack it. Um, if you have your, if you have it under control and if you reduce that response, let's say now you eat gluten, your body thinks the gluten is because it's similar to molecular structure to your thyroid gland. It thinks, oh, we have to attack. So when it attacks the gluten, it also attacks the thyroid. So you can get these flare-ups as a result. So that's why a lot of times we recommend, you know, if you have Hashimoto's, just cut out gluten because for that reason. And a lot of times we already do find that, like I said, a fifth of the people do have actually diagnosed celiac with Hashimoto's. And those that don't just have that gluten sensitivity because of that molecular structure and similarity to the thyroid gland that leads to kind of like upregulated disease, uh, which you don't want, obviously. Exactly. And the one thing that ties them together, they're both autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So that's something that it basically most diseases, if not all diseases we can think of is related to autoimmunity at some, some level. Now thyroid versus your gut, but yet it's still the hormonal imbalance and it's related to autoimmunity. So that's something that when we eat, or that goes back to what we talk about the environment and our lifestyle, the whole that we need to constantly focus on improving our health so our body doesn't attack itself. And that's vital for health and longevity. You were going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I start to think and then I pause. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing is I'll say is that when you have one autoimmune disease, your risk for developing another is higher. Exactly. So, um, and at the end of the day, this is what I wanted to say is autoimmune disease, what you want to think of it as is, is it's, an, it's an inflammatory condition. Exactly. So anything that is going to lead to low-grade chronic inflammation could potentially lead to autoimmune development. And obesity is actually one of those things. I didn't mention it earlier, but having fat tissue, fat tissue creates a low-grade chronic inflammatory environment. Like the adipokines, which are the hormones and the fat that are released, those generate inflammation. And so just by having excess fat tissue, you have inflammation going on. And, you know, they they are now, there's a lot more research coming out now to demonstrate the link between obesity and autoimmune disease. And for that reason, I mean, you think about cancer, what's, what's the underlying cause of cancer if it's not genetic? I mean, genetics only leads to 10% of cancer, 90% is lifestyle. And why is that? It's inflammation, all comes down to inflammation. So like everything we're talking about today, like how do we reduce inflammation at the end of the day? And that's really, that's really powerful and so true. I, my episode that I'm, I'm running right now as of this interview, so by the time this release, probably gonna be two weeks behind, is on um, inflammation and oxidative stress. And yeah. I want people to understand because I'm sometimes I'm scared to mention certain things, so I'll make sure I clarify certain things because we hear inflammation and now everybody's afraid. And I always bring up to everyone that inflammation is a necessary process of the human body. It's a matter of excess or chronic. Those are the things that we need to look out for. For example, and I'm sure you know this, um, foods that are rich in omega-3s are anti-inflammatory and foods that are rich in omega-6 are inflammatory. Right. Shows us our body needs both. If we get a cut, our body sends inflammatory cells to heal the cut. But if you have 20 cuts all over your body, then you have a problem, right? So inflammation is basically how the body protects and heals itself. But going back to the food part of it, we, we have developed on a, on a, on a uh, one-to-one um, omega-3s to omega-6. Some scientists, some doctors say two-to-one omega-3s to omega-6. Inflam- inflammatory, to, inflammatory to inflammatory. Okay, that's fine. The average American diet, I shall say standard American diet, I call it SAD, standard American diet, is about 15-to-one or 17-to-one inflammatory to anti-inflammatory. Right. So we got to stop and think about that. Just by the food that we eat, we are causing excess chronic inflammation. The processed stuff that we eat, the unnatural stuff that we eat, then, we, then that doesn't count the chemicals in, um, in the water that we drink mm-hmm. or in the stuff that we use to clean our house. All those things causing that excess inflammation. And then we wonder, oh, well, everybody in my family has cancer. I have cancer. Well, like you said, that's probably like genes is probably around 10%. Epigenetics play around 90% of the role. So then if you don't fix all those other issues that you have, how do you expect to overcome something that quote unquote runs in your family? Yep, exactly. And I think you made a good point. Like inflammation is a key process. It's when you never turn it off. So like you said, you get a cut, your body sends inflammatory, you know, signals there to heal it. Once it's healed, that process should shut off. What's happening with the foods we eat and the different things we're exposed to is that we never allow it to turn off. It's chronically on 
chronically producing inflammatory cytokines in the body. And that is the issue with our health. Um, that's the issue with inflammation that people need to be concerned with. Exactly. You know, this is, so this is Thursday and my, anyone that's listened to me for a while should notice by now, I do a dinner to dinner fast every week. I, um, Wednesday to Thursday, when I eat dinner Wednesday, I don't eat again until, um, Thursday dinner, maybe 24 hours, maybe 22, just depends on what my schedule may look like. Of course, I intermittent fast every day as well. So I have about a 10, 10 hour or sometimes eight hour feeding window, depending on my training. But one of the reasons why I do that is to heal my gut and to lower inflammation, um, lower oxidative stress. We eat ourselves to death a lot of times. And yeah. that's when I talk to someone and I tell them that I fast, most people are dumbfounded by it. They're like, what do you mean? My, my body just hurts just thinking about it. <laughs> I'm like, if you're that addicted to food, you don't, yeah. and you don't think that's an issue. Think about it. I'm not saying everybody should fast and just stop eating. You could you could jump into a hypoglycemic shock and kill yourself. That's not what I'm saying to do. Yeah. But just the thought that you are afraid to fast because you feel like you, you your body just can't handle it shows that there's something wrong that's going on. Every healthy nation, exactly in our mind, our, our yeah. mind the issue is because we um we are thinking ourselves to death. Yeah. You know, like most other animals eat when they're hungry. We eat because we think we're hungry. <laughs> we're watching a basketball we're supposed game to, right like we were supposed to eat like this whole snacking like I have two kids and I'm like my kids don't snack and you know the, the, as, like we went to school we never had snacks like now it's like you can send a morning snack and an afternoon snack for your kids and my daughter's like I don't need a snack and I'm like okay good like we're not sending snacks <laughs> like it's just crazy to me I'm like if you're not hungry you're not just gonna sit and graze all day and snack you know it's just uh and think about what we're training our children. And, you know, when I was growing up, even um, even in the U.S., I mean, obesity, um, diabetes, like it's primarily type 2. We know type 1 is a little different. But yeah. like um, diabetes, uh, COPD, we thought of those as something you would get when you get older. Right. Now right. we have children. We have 5-year-olds and 10-year-olds. The rate of obesity in children is skyrocketed. The um, diabetes, I mean, it's it's super up there yeah and not just in the u.s it's all over the world it's going up because as we get more access to food we basically eating ourselves to death our sugars are constantly too high and then we our sugars and our triglycerides for some reason is too high so i'm not saying what we're eating there so yeah it's we we, we need to stop and think it's, it may sound funny but what are we really doing to ourselves right. and what are we not just doing to ourselves but what are we teaching our children and what are we doing to our children? So, so let's talk a little bit about, so I take a walk every day. Every morning when I get up, I usually around, I wake up around six or so, but I usually get up before eight, walk in the sun, um, get, get some sunlight, get some fresh air. So I really want to ask you about this, given that you are an expert. What are some ways that the sunlight impacts our hormones? Yeah, I mean, so as humans, we're we're meant to be outside while the sun is out, right? And so the sun really guides and directs that circadian rhythm. Um, and like, really, we think about, when we think about that, we think about hormones like cortisol and melatonin. And so like your cortisol, that's your awake hormone. And your melatonin is your sleep hormone. And typically what's supposed to happen is when you wake up, that's supposed to skyrocket. It's supposed to give you that energy to function throughout the day and slowly supposed to decline 
and where basically they switch spots to the point where it declines, melatonin kicks in and you go to sleep. Well, the sun actually has a direct impact on that. Like you're waking up every morning, you have direct, um, I guess, uh, how do I put it? Direct sunlight, right? Like exposure from the moment you wake up, that's going to impact your cortisol levels to rise, which obviously is great for your health um, overall. And then obviously puts us into that appropriate balance and rhythm so that we can sleep better at night and melatonin, you know, it's supposed to kick in when it does. Um, but really melatonin is what kind of sets the tone for that whole circadian rhythm that we have. And so, you know, and, and there's a lot more research coming out around melatonin and how it impacts inflammation and cancer and autoimmunity. Um, it's really an anti-inflammatory hormone. It does more than just sleep, but its direct impact is going to be related to the sun. Um, because, because we want, and, and it's not necessarily directly to melatonin, but it's to cortisol. But like I said, they work hand in hand with each other. The other thing that's a precursor to melatonin is serotonin, um, which is, you know, people think people know serotonin and they immediately think the mood hormone, right? Which is, which is correct. Um, but it's, uh, you know, that's affected by exposure to daylight as well and exposure to the sun. So that it's produced normally during the day. And so you want the increase. That's why people, when they just sit out in the sun, they say, I feel happier. I feel better. There's a reason for that. There's actually science behind it. And that's, it's directly impacting your serotonin levels. Um, that's why sad, right? We see that the seasonal affective disorder, when the sun is not out, it's darker during the day. You know, there's there's a direct reason for that as well. I mean, we're not getting that sun exposure. It's impacting our serotonin levels, our melatonin, our cortisol. Therefore, it's leading to this depressive state. Um, so the, the sun is just amazing. I mean, I the days that it's gloomy, even if I'm indoors all day, versus the days that it's sunny, I just feel different. I instantly feel different. And people, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that, you know, the sun just has such a strong impact. And so like that daily routine that you have to go for a walk every day, I've been, I, that's something I'm trying to incorporate into my daily life. So I was just looking at my schedule, like, okay, after I drop off my kids, can I just walk for 20 minutes? Like, let me see if I can find that time, like at nine, just nine to 9.20 before I start my day. And so that is something I'm looking to incorporate as well because it's just it's just so healthy for you. You need it for so many reasons. I right now my I guess you call it my studio slash office is a window where I can see the rising sun. Yeah. And every day as I'm working, I I look at it and it automatically just puts me in a better mood. Um, now I I can't get out as early as I want to catch the rising the rising sun because but we both know that the benefits <laughs> of getting the red light from the rising sun how important it is. But in the evenings, however, after I eat dinner, I do have the benefit of walking in the, in the setting sun and getting that red light. Because not the, there's a difference between the, the sunlight when it's like 9, 10, 11, 12, and uh, the red light that we get from the rising or the setting sun does different things to our bodies. Yeah. So we do both. Especially the red light, is, 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 um, it's, uh, it's a shorter period of time, but it has a lot of anti-inflammatory effects. Our cells also respond to sunlight in so many ways. There's a research that uh, I think it's in PubMed, and it stay and it talks about walking in sunlight, how our cells respond to sunlight, and how we can aid in weight loss. And now that I think about it, the cultures in the world that people are slimmer are usually in, in environments where they're in the sun, 
quite often. I always say this, and it may offend some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's <laughs> no such thing as an indoor person. You tell yourself you're an indoor person. Right. That doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Yeah. Um, animals are outdoors. No matter how you look at it, animals love to be outdoors. If you take your dog outside, even if you've domesticated your dog, you take you spend enough time with your dog outside, they're not going to want to come back. They pick up your habits because you stay inside. Right. Um, this morning, one of my neighbors, I had their dog and we were running together. I had a dog on a leash and I was just <laughs> running with the dog and the dog was having such a good time with that running around the parking lot and stuff. And it was so much fun because dogs love to play. They love I'm not, I, yeah. animals in general. They love to play. They love to be active. They right. love the sunlight. They love nature. Human beings are animals. And I told her that our ability to think is what's killing us. Because we tell ourselves we're indoor people. We tell ourselves, I need, I need pizza because I'm watching a basketball game. We tell ourselves these things. And then we eat ourselves to death or we sit on the couch and Netflix ourselves to death, not realizing that there are so many things that we need to do. Now, I'm not attacking anyone directly. And a lot of times we don't know these things because we don't talk about these things. And if, especially if in the Western culture, you're not taught these things. But that's why I have this show. I want people to understand that there's so many things you can do. Take back your health. Don't let the world dictate what you do and your health. You dictate your own health. So let's uh, move on a little bit now. Let's talk about uh, probiotics because a lot of people talk about probiotics, you know, we don't, we don't know what to take, what to look out for. So how do probiotics impact weight loss, in your opinion? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of studies on this. Um, just looking at, there's a lot of studies on just gut health in general right now. And looking at people with various disease and the composition of the bacteria in their gut. And there's actually specific studies looking at those with obesity and looking at the composition of bacteria in their gut. And there's two, um, if you do like a gut test, or there's two bacteria that they we look at specifically, and that's Firmicutes and Bacteroides. And you typically, with a healthier gut, you want a higher ratio of Bacteroides to Firmicutes. And we see that in obesity, it's the opposite. And the reason why that that's not a good thing is because bacteroides actually ferment fiber into these short chain fatty acids, which help to support the gut lining, um, reduce inflammation and just kind of like build that barrier in the gut. So if you don't have, if you have an imbalance in that ratio, um, because of the foods you eat, essentially, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like what you put in is what you're going to get out. So if you're not feeding your body nutrient dense foods, you're eating crap, high sugar, um, you know, sugar's horrible, or even like artificial sweeteners, various processed foods, though that ultimately leads to obesity, correct? But at the same time, that also leads to gut dysbiosis and causes this dysregularity. And so, yes, now you have leaky gut. Now you do have, you know, a disproportionate amount of bad bacteria to good bacteria, which is what we don't want. Um, and so, you know, probiotics can help. So people are always like, oh, I can take a probiotic and I can lose weight. Well, no, because you can't keep eating the donuts and the, the sodas and then take a probiotic and say, I'm going to lose weight, you know, but, but if you're going to take the steps to heal, the probiotics going to help to heal the gut and bring it into like a more, you know, normalized levels. Correct. So um, wholeheartedly agree that probiotics are beneficial. I think everybody should be on them, but at the same time, 
you can't just rely on one thing. It's not like a siloed effect. Um, so we do need to consider our diet as well as probiotics and prebiotics for that matter, the foods that feed the bacteria as well, so that then we can like flourish and nourish the gut is how I like to put it. No, that's perfect. And we, for a while there, we were talking about probiotics all the time. Yeah. But we never really talked about prebiotics. Well, right. prebiotics feed the probiotics. So right. what are you going to do without it, right? And prebiotics is, in a summary, it's basically fiber. And 75% of Americans don't get enough fiber. Yeah. And that's just insane to me. All the processed food, all the crap that we eat. And, you know, when I was a kid, I remember when I was told that, that I should use the bathroom once a day. Sometimes I go two or three days or using the bathroom. And I thought I was normal. I never really thought much about it until I started, you know, getting enough fiber and started realizing I feel lighter. I feel much better. It's kind of like, is it Friday? Was it uh, the guy came out? I remember his name again. Reese. I don't remember his name, but I, I don't know if you, when he came out and he said, I feel five pounds lighter. <laughs> you know, like it really does do that. And it, but it does free feed um, the probiotics in your body. So if you want to grow more good bacteria, you want to give it stuff that it can eat. Right. So even before going to probiotics, the, the actual supplement, I say start off with eating the right things. You know, like uh, kombucha is, uh, is, is a good probiotic, fermented foods, you right. know, um, good source of Greek yogurt that, and, and be careful because don't get yogurt that has a bunch of sugar because that's going to defeat the purpose. So then you want to get good, good source of, um, of uh, Greek yogurt that doesn't have excess sugar. Switch out, um, you know, your sugar for maybe stevia or another more steady type of sugar, um, sugar for your body. Stay away from um, alternative sugars. Some of them are 600 times sweeter than sugar itself. And our bodies... Um, they also disrupt the bacteria. Like artificial sweeteners destroy your, your gut bacteria. And um, your mental health. Yes, and your mental health. There's a study that shows yeah. that uh, there's a connection between diet sodas or and, um, and, uh, and, and mental health issues and anxiety and depression because our bodies operate as if it's getting sugar, but then it's not getting sugar. So right. we're like, oh, we, uh, I'm only having one calorie. I'm fine. No, 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 no. You're probably creating more problems. I'm not advocating for Coke, but it may be better to just drink the actual Coke instead of getting the diet because at least your body knows what sugar is. Your body doesn't know what, uh, what, what, um, I don't eat artificial sugars. So I don't even know what they are, but. <laughs> Splenda. There we go. Splenda. Well, I don't know what that is. Yeah. So you're right. So what are um, some things to look out for? If someone say, okay, I, I, I do have a good um, gut environment as far as my diet. I do have a lot of probiotics and I eat a lot of fiber because I mean, you need yeah. to eat fiber, the fourth macronutrient. Mm -hmm. But in a probiotic product, what are some things that you know they should look out for? Well, first of all, there's so many probiotics out there. I always tell people when you're looking, when you're reading the label, you know, you have three different aspects to the bacteria, which is the genus, the species, and the strain. And so your um, genus and species are like your lactobacillus, you know, acidophilus, for instance, right? So people are familiar with seeing those. But then the strain is like 147 or LA5, or right? It's just like another number attached to it. And the, pro the characteristics of a probiotic are strain-specific. You know, and so when when there's when there are um, companies that just report out the genus and species, I automatically 
don't consider their product um, because that means they didn't do the research on the specific strain. The other thing is I do look for companies that that research the that have actual research related to their probiotics. And that's super important because that's demonstrating that it's shelf stable, that it actually is getting through your intestinal tract, you know, past the acidic environment and doing what it needs to do. Um, so I would look for companies like that. And then the other thing is, you know, you're looking for a variety, but you're looking for quantity and you need at least 1 billion colony forming units. The more, the better, 25 billion, you know, what, like variety and qu quantity and quality is key in a probiotic, um, you know, and, and I always like to switch it up. Like, don't always keep taking the same probiotic, you know, switch it up and um, diversify your gut. So you just basically just broke it down to the three things that we need to be looking for. So that's that's really awesome. And if anyone have questions about the probiotic you're taking or probiotics that you um you should be taking, yeah. you can of course uh, send Dr. Mazzola a message on Instagram. She'd be more than happy to talk to you and help you because these are things that we need to know. Absolutely. Because we're just wasting our money if we're buying these expensive probiotic products and they're doing nothing for us. Right. Um, some of them are not even live probiotics, really. <laughs> so so well, they, don't, they don't survive in your gut. That's the scary, right? Like they're good on the shelf, but they once they get through your gut, the acid doesn't allow them to survive. So they have to be formulated in a certain way to be able to do that and to survive. So that's key. Exactly. So yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to um, send Dr. Mazzola a message or even myself, but I'll refer to her as the expert in this definitely. But yeah, it's very important to don't, don't, don't waste your money. Don't, don't waste your money just because you think something is working. Work with someone who is an expert who knows what actually can work for you. So thank you so much, Dr. Mazzola. That's awesome. I want to get into this now because we talked about sun a little bit. So now I want to talk about EMF because this is something that now we're in this 5G environment. It's becoming more and more important to understand what EMF is and how it impacts our body and our health. So let's talk, tell us some more about that. Yeah, I mean, so that's there. It's electromagnetic frequencies, right? That's what EMFs are, and they're everywhere, right? If you have a laptop, if you have a phone, Wi-Fi routers, you know, people made their homes smart homes, um, Bluetooth connections, you know, that's all generating exposure to these electromagnetic frequencies. And when they do safety reports on EMFs, they do them separately, right? To each they're not looking at it as a compounded effect. So like I just said, in your home, how many devices can you think of that are exhibiting EMF, right? They're like putting more exposure. So that adds up. So that added burden, it's no different than the toxic burden that we look at with various chemicals, right? That we're exposed to. It's like when they test the chemicals by itself, they're like, nope, it's safe. But they're not looking at the abundance, the quantity, and 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 then adding it to other chemicals that we're being exposed to. So EMFs is the same thing. And why are we concerned with it? Because obviously it's it's a compounded effect of exposure, and it starts to add up. Um, but it, it impacts our health on a cellular level. So we talk about you know reactive oxygen species. That's ultimately what EMFs cause. And these reactive oxygen species, just for simplicity, when we think oh, that food is high in antioxidants. So when people say like, oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's the opposite of reactive oxygen species, right? So you want antioxidants, you know, to kind of regulate those reactive oxygen species because those are causing direct damage to your DNA, right? So those are at a cellular level. And so 
if we're impacting our health at a cellular level with the exposure of EMFs, um, you know, that that leads to inflammation. Like that that's a cause of inflammation. That's a cause of autoimmunity. You know, that's a cause of just that overall dysregulated health. And so I don't want to stress people out, but it's something we have to think about, um, you know, with our health. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's like that's that's that that exposure that we're constantly have that we need to we need to try to mitigate as much as we can. And that's what drives me crazy, because you start off by saying the key thing. When we do that a study, we look at we look at it on different sides. We don't look at the entire impact. We look at this one study, this one thing, what this one thing does. 5G by itself, 5G is not bad. 5G doesn't cause cancer. It doesn't cause this. It doesn't cause inflammation. It doesn't cause accidental stress. But yeah, but when you're wired up all day, that's a whole different story. And that's why it's so important to go outside, to get the fresh air, to get the sunlight, and stop saying you're an indoor person and become an, an outdoor person. It's very important. We now know that even the earth, the earth vibrates at a certain frequency. Um, animals um, have, a, have a certain frequency. Natural, natural things in nature have a certain frequency that, where they need to vibrate. And by wiring ourselves all the time, having uh, we're basically like Wi-Fi routers. You know, we're sleeping, we're Wi-Fi routers. All these signals going through us impacts our health on so many levels. Now, I'm not saying you should go into the dark ages, turn off all your electronics and, you know, and go live in a cave. That's not what I'm saying. But again, there's so many things we can do to limit our exposure. I know people like Ben Greenfield and Sean Stevenson who they turn off their Wi-Fi when they're going to sleep because they don't want to be a Wi-Fi router when they're sleeping. You know, the, again, going outside and, you know, stepping away every time you possibly can. Try to limit your exposure. Those are just small things you can do to improve your hormones, um, your hormone, your, the hormonal balances in your body. Lower oxidative stress, lower inflammation, improve obesity, and so many things that we have control of. Yep, so, totally agree. <laughs> it's not easy. That's, that's not an easy one, but... We have to be mindful of it. Exactly. Like I said, we don't need to go into the dark ages and live in a cave, but we, do, we can do whatever we can do to limit that exposure is very important. Don't use a tablet at night, you know, when you're in bed or on your computer. And I have a rule. My, my computer is, it stays in my studio, stays in my office. It's never on my bed. I don't right. work on my bed. My bed is sleep time. So, you know, just little things like those that we can do. So we talked about a lot of things today. And you're given an expert. I want to ask you, what are some of your non-negotiables, other than the things that we've mentioned? What are some things that you think is vital just for everyday life? Um, exercise, sleep, um, just almost like a downtime, like giving yourself your self-care time, and just healthy eating. I mean, you you have to be mindful of what you're putting in your body because it just has a direct effect on how you feel. But, you know, at least 80% of the time is what I try to tell people. It's just an 80-20 rule for that. But getting eight hours of sleep, exercising every day, like the days that, and I'd say seven days, like, you don't even if it's just yoga on the seventh day or something like more light, but you should be moving every single day. Um, yeah, and those are things that I, I don't ever go a day without. Right. And you know what you say, moving everyone, I challenge everyone, get 10,000 steps every yeah. single day. 
that should be minimal. Don't tell me, oh, I'm too busy, so I only get 5,000 steps a day. No, get 10,000 steps. If that means every hour you get up for five minutes and walk around, whatever you have to do, get 10,000 steps every single day. A, a golden rule of mine is I get 5,000 steps before I eat every day um, wow. to get my metabolism started. Um, so usually my first, I usually eat my first meal about 11 or so, maybe 12. And I get in 5,000 because I'm out there running with the dog or walking with the ladies in my complex or something. So <laughs> I always get my 5,000 steps before I eat every day. And that's key for your metabolism because I have a saying, a metabolism in motion stays in motion. And yeah. by constantly moving, you're giving your body the right signal to burn fat. Don't tell me, oh, I'm, I, I just can't burn fat because it runs in my family. Or, you know, I eat something and I look at something and I gain weight. Well. Did you, did you walk after you eat? There's so many studies now that show that walking to 10 to 50 minutes pre and post meals and how it aids digestion and improves weight loss. Instead of eating and sitting down and watching TV and say, oh, I can't move. But for you, I ate too much anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so many awesome. things to think about there. Um, yeah, basically, like I said, basic things that we can definitely do. Yeah, definitely. So, You've given us so much good information. I know it went over the time that I, we were planning today, but I, I couldn't help it. You're just so awesome. So uh, tell, my, um, tell my audience, what are the best ways to get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find me on my website, drautoimmunegirl.com. Subscribe to my newsletter. I do send it out monthly. Um, well, I'm a little late this month, but I'm going to get out, get it out there. Um, and then of course on Instagram and Facebook, whatever platform you choose, Dr. Autoimmune Girl, I post on there daily sending out this exact information that we talked about today. So it's always up to date. It's always new and it's always fresh. And a lot more because I'm telling you, she always brings something where I'm like, wow, I need to research this. I need to learn more. <laughs> You, you, you're going to get into that habit as soon as you start learning more and, you know, reading the post, you're going to realize things you never knew before. So thank you so much, Dr. Mazzola. That is really awesome. Um, your information, as always, will be in the show notes. It's going to be uh, com slash Dr. Donna Mazzola. It's made the show notes. And I'll put a link to that in the description of the podcast as well. So we know how to access the show notes and how to get in touch with Dr. Mazzola. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to the Zico Health Show. If you got good quality content out of this episode, save, subscribe, and share it out there with family, friends, coworkers, or anybody who needs to hear this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.